This episode is brought to you by Dropbox. Start your 14-day free trial with this amazing service by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to the Best of the Left podcast with clips today from The Daily Show, Rachel Maddow, Countdown, On the Media, The Young Turks, Real Time with Bill Maher, and Counterspin. change. But there was another thing that he wanted the people to have, information. What I want to do is increase transparency and accountability to offset the power of the special interests and the lobbyists. A president that they can trust, who's going to promote accountability and transparency. Somebody who believes in the transparency and accountability of our government. Sunlight is the best disinfectant. Sunlight is the best. It's a beautiful metaphor. Although I do have to caution our audience at home, uh, sunlight is actually a terrible, terrible disinfectant. <laughs> If you do uh, at home have a cut or an open wound of any kind, I can't stress this enough, do not clean it out with sunlight. Uh, You're going to want to go with some antibiotic, maybe neosporin, abacitracin. I'm getting off track. Um, My point is, after eight years of classifications, redactions, pixelated Google Earth maps, and the war on terrors, you're still not allowed to say that on camera? Now we're going to know everything from state secrets to Obama's once-a-day smoking habit. Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Turns out he he likes to get them all out of the way at once. The bottom line is we're going to get it all. It's a brand new day in Washington. First thing I want to know, how much does the government uh, eavesdrop on uh, the people? Let me know. His administration is invoking the state secrets privilege, just as President Bush did, to shield eavesdropping programs from public exposure. (laughs) I did not see that coming. Well, I guess if you tell us about eavesdropping, it's no longer eavesdropping. Just being nosy. You never ring someone's doorbell and go, hi, I'm your peeping Tom. The president said today he is not going to allow the planned release of hundreds of Pentagon photos that show the mistreatment and abuse of prisoners by U.S. personnel. (laughs) All right, I can understand that. You know, maybe one of those situations where sunlight really isn't a disinfectant. Sunlight is is more of an infectant. But other than that, you know, let the sunshine, let the, right? Some of the government websites that were set up to track stimulus are not up and running, speaking of transparency. And there was also a recent development on the CIA interrogation tapes and an effort by this administration to keep all related documents secret. The White House Office of Administration does not have to release records about possible emails, missing emails. Remember the story from the Bush White House. The White House now saying that they will not give uh, access to the list of White House visitors, who comes and who goes. They don't believe that that is information the public needs to know. You do know transparency means, right? This is not transparency. This is transparency. 
Why won't you let us know who's visiting you at the White House? What are you afraid we're going to Who's visiting? Bono? <laughs> Satan? Urkel? Who? Is there anything else that we can't see? The Justice Department is trying to prevent the release of an interview Dick Cheney gave in 2004 as part of the investigation into the CIA leak case. Why does the Obama administration want to protect former Vice President Dick Cheney from the likes of Jon Stewart? What? So the... What? The entirety of the American people have been kept in the dark about the CIA leak case because of this ass... This jackass is ruining for... That's me. I've gotten old. In fact, really? In fact, according to Obama's own Justice Department, a future vice president asked to provide candid information during a criminal probe might refuse to do so out of concern that it's going to get on The Daily Show. You're worried the future vice presidents will refuse to testify in legal matters because they don't want to be made fun of? Well, let me, if I may, cite the case of Brown v. Board of Tough <laughs> Don't be the crook if you can't handle the schnook. You know, uh, uh, people might tease me. It's not a valid reason to reject a subpoena. Of course, it can be used to get you out of gym class, as my mother did for me. Mostly because I had 16 nipples. To this day, I'm the only student to ever receive the dreaded hexadecanerpal. <laughs> Later, I had 14 of them removed and used them as yarmulkes for my G.I. Joe collection. <laughs> Why didn't I get laid in high school? I don't understand. So handsome. For God's sakes, the whole point of being vice president is to be a snide humor magnet, to deflect any douche arrows from people like me that might head towards the president. You think Joe Biden's really more qualified than Hillary Clinton? No. It's who's the best executive branch rodeo clown. You believe Dan Quayle was actually a functional illiterate who couldn't spell potato? The guy was a senator. He threw himself on the grenade for Bush. The only reason Nixon picked Spiro Agnew is that his name is an anagram for grow a penis. <laughs> Without that guy being a very funny distraction, Nixon has no time to do Watergate. <laughs> Not to mention, now the Department of Justice is worried about us making Cheney jokes. You're a little late. Every time Dick Cheney smiles like that, an angel gets waterboarded. The man who's kept alive by IV drips of panda tears and angel blood. Cheney, as you know, always brings his own cover of darkness. He's allergic to sun. He retreats into his protective casing. Did it just get evil in here? You don't know Dick. Dick uncut. Without looking like a supervillain. Hello, John. 
please, stop comparing me to Dick Cheney. Don't worry about Dick Cheney getting made fun of. We're all out. the President of the United States. Of course, he cannot follow me, for I am the most dynamic public speaker of our generation. As you can tell, you can feel the energy at this very moment. Part of the reason I am the most dynamic public speaker of our generation is because I have a compelling personal story. I was born of two worlds. My father was from Fitchburg, Massachusetts. My mother from the city of Philadelphia which I believe is not even in the same state as Fitchburg, Massachusetts. I grew up in Brookline, Massachusetts, your typical limousine liberal town, but I did not have a limousine until I was 12. <laughs> My parents came from working class families. We had a modest home that we were surrounded by wealth on all sides. We had a modest three-story home with 16 rooms. That's true. We had more rooms than we knew what to do with. In fact, we devoted one room solely so that I could practice uh, the clarinet and the viola. Yes, that's right, clarinet and viola. That's what I said. Strings and woodwinds in the same room. I fused the two worlds. I made it happen. And somehow through this strange hybrid upbringing, through work and diligence, I still managed to attain the American dream. I went on television. <laughs> it can happen. It can happen. Even in this country, a middle-aged, round-faced, weak-chinned nerd can go on television, and I am living proof. It's hard not to be inspired, I have to say. The president, of course, has his own compelling personal story of some kind, so I've heard. So you know what I'm talking about. He is also born of two worlds, and that is why we look to him and to this presidency for inspiration and for hope. Hope, finally, that we can heal the great and shameful division that has plagued our nation for so long. I am talking, of course, about the age-old conflict between jocks and nerds. It is, it is the culture war of our time. When I say nerd, I am not merely talking about people who are good at math or who, the who know the names of all three kinds of hobbits, Falafides, Hardfoots, and Stores, obviously. <laughs> and when I speak of jocks, I am not actually speaking of athletes, because athletes are people with actual beautiful skills, and they are greatly rewarded for those skills. And so they walk like giants across the earth, unheeding to the squabbles between jocks and nerds that go on on the ground behind them. It is a question of philosophy. 
The last administration did not have a lot of world-class athletes in it, but it was clearly a jock administration. I don't say this with judgment. I don't look down on it. It's simply a question of philosophy. They proceeded at all times from intense confidence and certainty what, what they were doing was correct. They privileged gut instinct over complexity and bookish rumination. They probably hated anyone who used the word privileged as a verb. And they were led by a cheerleader, obviously. Most of the reporters in this room probably worked on their high school newspapers. You are nerds. You proceed from a different philosophy, not of certainty, but of questioning. You are the questioners, the reality testers, you know, the nitpickers. That is why you are so annoying sometimes. <laughs> not like the jocks, who are great to be around. You interviewed the jocks. You know they're likable, confident, nice to be around. Not so much you and me, I'm afraid. <laughs> Uh, radio talk show hosts are jocks, bloggers are nerds. This is obvious. Newspaper men and women used to be jocks because they used to run things. Now more like ham radio operators. <laughs> radio shack hobby nerds, I'm sorry. This is called winning them over, <laughs> Mr. President. Got them in the palm of my hand now. Absolutely. Speaking of uh, Supreme Court nominees, uh, strict constructionist jocks. Anyone who believes that they know uh, the original intent of the framers of the Constitution are obviously jocks because A, they hate hippies, and B, uh, they neglect the fact that the Constitution is perhaps the most geeky document of all time. It is essentially the uh, frequently asked questions list of the United States that was written by moneyed, sickly, bookish, bifocal-wearing nerds who believed that God was a distant, uncaring dungeon master. You know where I stand in this great divide. I'm a big fat geek. And there are those of you who will say, wait a minute, didn't he earlier say he was a nerd? There's a difference between geeks and nerds, of course. And to you people, I say, shut up, nerds. <laughs> this is not the time for bickering. This is a historic moment. Because seated to my right right now is the person that some people say is the first nerd president of the modern era. Look at the evidence. It is said that he collected uh, comic books as a child. He is facile with a Star Trek reference. Uh, he knows who the father of Superman is, Jor-El, J-O-R hyphen E-L. <laughs> Get it right. He is not only comfortable with technology, uh, but he is apparently addicted to his name brand smartphone that I shall not name for contractual reasons. <laughs> he is a writer. He writes books even when he doesn't have to. And he speaks of restoring science and the concept of objective reality to the public square. It is an exciting time to be a nerd. There is talk in some states of even decriminalizing uh, evolution. <laughs> At this very moment, the fate of Iran is strangely entwined with the sleep schedules of the geeks who maintain the servers at Twitter and YouTube. <laughs> and even the president seems to appreciate that we've reached a turning point in history, a triumph, or dare I say, a revenge of the nerds. <laughs> but we in the nerd community are nervous, more so than usual. <laughs> we are wary, Mr. President, I have to say, I'm sorry to say. Are you really one of us? Because after all, despite his uh, spockish, calm, and gangly frame, <laughs> the president is known to dabble in sports. And not just bowling, but the hard stuff. 
what they call baskets ball. <laughs> Last spring, he was seen constantly looking at March Madness brackets, and I was encouraged by this, because I presumed March Madness brackets were some form of obscure punctuation. I thought, I thought he was a typeface nerd, my kind of people. But apparently it's some kind of sporty flowchart that I don't understand. <laughs> I don't know what to believe anymore, frankly. You know, the talk radio hosts say that the president uh, is a mystery. There is no documentation of his existing before this very night, frankly. We have no proof that he is an American citizen, or for that matter, an earthling. And I think it's a legitimate question. Is the president truly nerdcore, or is it all just an act, as fake as those obviously prosthetic ears? <laughs> You people do an amazing job, but you're not asking the hard questions about this president's nerd credentials. And so it falls to me. Can I have the first slide, please? Okay, there we go. This is a picture that I found on the internet, Mr. President. For those of you listening on the radio, <laughs> there's a picture of the president standing in front of a statue of Superman. It was taken in Metropolis, Illinois by Clyde Wills of the Metropolis Planet. Sir, is this a doctored photo or is this a real photo? Did you know that statue was behind you when you had that photo taken? <laughs> I, I had read on the internet, sir, that uh, this, was, this photo was on your Senate website for a period of time. Is that true? Why is it not the homepage of WhiteHouse.gov? <laughs> Are you ashamed, sir? Are you ashamed of your friendship with a statue of Superman? Next slide. I'll move on. Okay. Here we have the actor Leonard Nimoy, also a prosthetic ear enthusiast. You two would get along. In fact, on the public radio show Wait, Wait, Don't Tell Me, Leonard Nimoy claimed that in Chicago you flashed him what is known as the Vulcan Salute. Is that true, sir, or is, oh, jeez. <laughs> All right, you passed that one. But what about this? I have read that as a child you read Spider-Man comic books and Conan the Barbarian comic books. Which one is that that we showed on the screen? It was, it, was, it was Conan. It was, I'll just tell you, it was Conan the Barbarian. There it is. Now, do you happen to remember, sir, what was the name of the god that Conan the Barbarian worshipped, the fictional god that Conan the Barbarian worshipped? You stumped me on that one. I stumped you on that one. The answer is Krom. By Krom. You don't remember that, sir? Have... I see. Have you and your family chosen a church in which to worship Krom yet? Not yet. We haven't found one in D.C. America wishes to know. There are some who claim, sir, that you are the Kwisatz Haderach. Hello, nerds. I'm sure you know Mr. President and the five people back there. When I say Kwisatz Haderach, I am referring to the novel Dune and the galactic messiah that was prophesied by the all-female religious cult called the Bene Gesserit, who were addicted to the spice melange, which was produced by the giant sandworms on the desert planet of Arrakis, also known as Dune. Why, look. 
Oops. Oh, I gotta go back now. There's a giant sandworm now. Now, I know you know all of this, so you won't mind a quick three-part question. <laughs> Sir, what is the name of the giant sandworm in the original Fremen language of Dune? What is the machine that is used to summon such a sandworm? And what is the name of the hallucinogenic vomit that the sandworm expunges when they have been drowned in water? Don't think about it, sir. These are easy questions. There is no reason you should not know this, and in fact, America awaits your response. Sir, if you are truly a nerd... Uh, no, excuse me. Excuse me. I have to let it seep in. Oh. I'm sorry. I'm sorry I lost control. I'm sorry, Mr. President. It is my fault. You are clearly not exactly the person we hoped you would be. <laughs> and perhaps it was wrong and impractical and unrealistic of us to lay such hopes upon you. The reality is we are geeks. We are defined by our passions and our enthusiasms, but also by our open-mindedness. Now is not a time for purity tests. But I am nervous. I am nervous because this is a beginning. Princess Urulan said, a beginning is a delicate time. And it is unsettling to realize that the time that we are in is not a triumph of the nerds. This is not the end of something happening. This is the beginning of a long journey. And many of the categories and labels that we have used to define ourselves and divide ourselves are evaporating. And while that is exciting, it is also unsettling and scary. In many ways, uh, the talk radio, shows are, uh, talk radio show hosts are correct. The president is a complete mystery to me, but no more so uh, than the future itself. And as I am a geek, I am obliged to embrace the future. So I'm happy to turn to the president and extend what I consider to be the most American of greetings. Sir, though we may not always agree, I have been and always shall be your friend. Live long and prosper. podcast is supported by Dropbox. Dropbox is amazingly powerful and incredibly simple. It runs on your computer as an almost ordinary folder, but anything you put in that folder is synced automatically with the Dropbox servers. From there, you can easily share the files with anyone or keep multiple computers like work and home in sync all the time, all while enjoying a secure online backup of those files. I personally use Dropbox and find it to be indispensable, and now listeners of Best of the Left can get a 14-day free trial by following the Dropbox link at bestoftheleft.com. wrote to the defense of Dick Cheney because the Obama Justice Department said the Obama administration will probably have just as much trouble with the law as the Bush administration did. 
Our third story tonight, a freedom of information request for the FBI's notes from their discussion with then-Vice President Dick Cheney about the leak revealing Valerie Plame's identity as a covert CIA operative to punish or discredit her husband, Joe Wilson, who had just blown the lid off President Bush's lies about Iraq trying to buy a uranium from Niger. The Obama administration last night filed an argument with the court on why it should not release the Cheney notes. Why not? Because if the Cheney interview notes are released, future White House officials might not be forthcoming if they are interviewed for fear their notes too will get out. Quote, there's a reasonable probability of future law enforcement investigations by the DOJ that will require and benefit from obtaining information from White House officials, possibly at the highest level. If law enforcement interviews of senior level White House officials become subject to routine public disclosure, the White House official may agree to talk only in response to a grand jury subpoena. Despite the Obama administration's growing pattern of secrecy, the filing does appear to offer something new, namely official confirmation or further confirmation that Mr. Bush and Mr. Cheney did in fact discuss the plain leak. When is not clear, the DOJ filing says presidential privilege covers Mr. Cheney's interview about a conversation he had with the president and, quote, an apparent communication between them. Let's bring in MSNBC contributor Michael Isikoff, investigative reporter at Newsweek magazine, sat near me in the CIA leak case. Mike, thanks for joining us. Hi, David. I want to get back to that Bush-Cheney communication in a second, but you have reported on Mr. Obama's secrecy levels. Are we talking both about a pattern of keeping things secret, but also of a similarity in the rationales for keeping things secret? Yeah, a lot of people who are following this are seeing a troubling pat pattern here. Uh, President Obama began on his first full day in office uh, with a uh, e executive order uh, for transparency, declaring open government was going to be the hallmark of his presidency, uh, and specifically in Freedom of Information Act requests, Attorney General Eric Holder said the presumption should always be to disclose uh, rather than to withhold unless there's some identifiable foreseeable harm to the government from disclosure, and yet time and again, uh, 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 people who have filed Freedom of Information Act uh, requests, uh, public interest groups, uh, the ACLU and others, see uh, the Obama administration retreating to using the same arguments for secrecy that were used in the Bush administration. We saw that with the uh, decision to withhold the photos of detainee abuse, in which the pre president ordered them kept closed, the use of the state secret acts to shut down lawsuits alleging abuse, uh, the uh, White House visitors logs, which the uh, White House has uh, withheld on freedom of information requests, and now even on something historical in nature, Vice, former Vice President Cheney's interview with the FBI years ago in a closed criminal investigation, the Obama Justice Department making an argument that these need to be kept secret. Michael, as far as the, uh, the Bush-Cheney conversations in the midst of the CIA leak case, if memory serves me correctly from the trial, evidence came out that there was some sort of discussion that was referred to about between the president and Dick Cheney about declassifying part of a national intelligence estimate that would then be leaked out as a way of undercutting uh, Joe Wilson. Is that the conversation, the crucial Bush-Cheney conversation that uh, was essentially reinforced by this document filing? Well, that's the one that we know about because that did come out in trial uh, that in late June of, of 2003, just as the uh, whole uh, controversy was 
erupting about those famous 16 words where uh, uh, President Bush had claimed in a State of the Union that uh, Iraq was seeking yellow cake uh, uranium from Africa, and then it was undercut by Joe, Joe Wilson. Uh, Vice President Cheney and President Bush had a discussion about how to rebut that criticism, uh, and one of the things they decided in that discussion was to selectively declassify and then leak uh, aspects of the national intelligence estimate on, on Iraqi WMD that they thought would support their case. And of course, that led to Scooter Libby talking about that NIE with Judy Miller of the New York Times. And that was a conversation, a fateful conversation, in which later testimony showed he did disclose some a very critical fact that uh, Joe Wilson's wife, Valerie Plame Wilson, worked at the CIA. The, uh, the, the key question, uh, well, at least in my view, from, from my memories of Scooter Libby's grand jury testimony that got played at the trial was that he remembered specific conversations, having specific conversations with Dick Cheney about courses of action that Scooter Libby should take, but Scooter Libby said he could not remember what exactly was said in those conversations or anything generally. Is that the thrust of the matter here? We know that Scooter Libby took actions to try to obstruct the investigation. He was convicted for it. We've never quite gotten Dick Cheney's view of what Dick Cheney said to Scooter Libby in the midst of all of that. Exactly, and that's why people wanted to see what Dick Cheney said uh, to the FBI in this, uh, in this interview as, as part of the investigation. We know what Scooter Libby said, uh, and he was ultimately convicted of lying uh, uh, in, in, uh, in what he said before the grand jury and to the FBI uh, about, his, uh, about his knowledge of uh, Valerie Plame Wilson and where he learned it. We also know that notes show that it was uh, Vice President Cheney who first told him about it. So you recall the, the closing arguments of Patrick Fitzgerald at the trial. He said there's a cloud over the vice president's office. This was always about uh, Dick Cheney and suspicion of many that Scooter Libby, who got convicted in this case, was protecting Vice President Cheney. Mike, on another note, the CIA tonight requested its uh, third extension of the deadline for releasing its internal report on detainee torture, this time not an extension of a week or two, uh, but uh, two months. Um, how should we interpret this? Uh, another setback for public disclosure, uh, once again. Uh, now, again, it is a delay, so we'll see in two months whether we get this very important CIA Inspector General's report, which is a critical document in the whole question of detainee abuse and torture and waterboarding. This was the only uh, government internal review of the matter. It is believed to have been harshly critical of the CIA and how it was conducting these interrogations, but the public has never been able to see it. I think the a practical effect of this, to, of delaying it, is to sort of further blunt uh, the calls for a truth commission and accountability on, these, uh, uh, on this subject. The longer it can be dragged out, the longer the public doesn't get to see the critical documents that's, uh, that the government has about this, uh, the harder it is to make the case, uh, uh, the harder it is to build the political pressure for some form of accountability. So those, including those in the White House and President Obama, who have tried to, who have sought to deflect charges, are, are probably pleased by this delay. Michael Isikoff of Newsweek and MSNBC. Hey, Mike, we're going to get those Cheney FBI notes from the state lead case someday. <laughs> Keep the faith, Mike. Have a and great we'll July talk 4th. about them. Okay. Okay. Sounds good. We saw the western coast. I saw the hospital. That's the shoreline like a wound. Love was tricked, but now they're clear, no, the 
We begin with what may be the biggest post-Bush presidency scandal that we have seen to date. Allegations that some members of Congress say should lead to a criminal investigation of the former vice president, Richard Bruce Cheney. This is a story, an allegation that started to unfold last week in an oblique, almost formless story about problems with what Congress knew about the CIA. The impact of the story wasn't recognizable at the start until the details started to fall into place one by one. On Wednesday night, we got first news of a short, mysterious letter written by Democrats on the House Intelligence Committee alleging that the CIA director, Leon Panetta, had told them that the CIA had been lying to Congress for years. A very provocative letter to be sure, but it was very short. There were no details. Mostly the release of that letter just engendered a lot of speculation about why this was happening, what it might be referring to, and the timing, why it came out when it did, what political motivations might have been behind it. That was on Wednesday. On Thursday, we learned that CIA Director Leon Panetta was investigating whatever it was that he told Congress about that sparked that little letter from the Democrats. We learned further that this program, whatever it had been, had never been described to the public before. And we learned that Mr. Panetta himself didn't even know about that program for the first four and a half months of his tenure leading the CIA. Immediately after he found out about the program, Literally that day, Mr. Panetta ended the program, and then the very next day, he went to Congress and briefed them about it. So he at least had some sense of urgency about it. The next detail to fall into place came on Friday. It was the bombshell from Congresswoman Jan Schakowsky that the CIA didn't just neglect to inform Congress about this program. They didn't just forget. It wasn't just an oversight. She said the CIA had been ordered to not tell Congress about it. They had been overtly ordered to hide the program from Congress. Jan Schakowsky was a guest on this program, and I asked her who ordered the CIA to keep the program quiet. Check out her response. There was a decision that was made not to tell the Congress. Um, and, and so that's one of the things that we have to look into very carefully, why that decision was made, who made the, the decision not to inform the, the Congress. This was no mistake. They, we, they did not want us to know about this. Do you know who made the decision? We're going to—I can't talk about uh, the, the names that were involved, but um, I think our investigation needs to determine exactly who—what conversations were had uh, and, and who signed off on those decisions. I can't talk about the names that were involved. That was on Friday on this show. On Saturday night, all of a sudden, yeah, we can talk about the names now. The top of the New York Times website, Saturday night, bingo, Cheney is linked to concealment of CIA project. Quote, the Central Intelligence Agency withheld information about a secret counterterrorism program from Congress for eight years on direct orders from former Vice President Dick Cheney. That is a major bombshell. That is potentially a significant crime. The 1947 National Security Act states in very unambiguous terms, the president shall ensure that the congressional intelligence committees are kept fully and currently informed of the intelligence activities of the United States, including any significant anticipated intelligence activity. Congress should be fully informed, fully and currently informed. That's in the law, as in thou shalt not overtly order that Congress be kept in the dark. 
Since the Saturday night Cheney bombshell, there have been some vague disclosures about what this program actually is or might be. The Wall Street Journal characterizing it as an assassination program, which, if true, would be illegal. The Ford administration banned that 30 years ago. But regardless of what the program is exactly, it's not the exact contours of this program that are expected to now determine Mr. Cheney's fate. It's simply the extent to which his deliberate order to deceive Congress can be proven. So far, the, the recently quite verbose Mr. Cheney is not talking. Members of Congress, however, are. To have a massive program that is concealed from the leaders in Congress is not only inappropriate, it could be illegal. I think this is a problem, obviously. This is a big problem because the law is very clear. We were kept in the dark. That's something that should never, ever happen again. Senators Durbin and Feinstein, of course, are both Democrats. Senator Feinstein, the chair of the Intelligence Committee. Across the aisle from them, the reaction from Republicans has been rather more subdued. This, of course, comes on the heels of a statement, uh, unproven, by the way, of Speaker Pelosi, that the CIA had lied to her about enhanced interrogation techniques. And this looks to me suspiciously uh, like uh, an attempt to provide political cover to her and others. Look, the president and the vice president are the two people who have responsibility, ultimately, for the national security of the country. It is not out of the ordinary for the vice president to be involved in an issue like this. But to order it be kept secret? What if it's a top-secret program? Of course he and the president would both be responsible for that. Let's don't jump to conclusions is what I'm saying. Let's don't jump to conclusions. Let's don't, of course. But let's also make sure that appropriate conclusions are drawn here. Joining us now is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, Democrat of Rhode Island. He's a member of the Senate Intelligence Committee and the Senate Judiciary Committee. It was a big day on that committee, which we'll talk about in a moment. Uh, Senator Whitehouse, thanks very much for joining us. Really appreciate it. Good to be with you. Senator Durbin says this could be illegal. Senator Kent Conrad says it's a serious breach. Senator Debbie Stabenow says it's very serious. Senator Feinstein says it's a big problem because the law is very clear. Uh, your colleagues are speaking out about this uh, loudly and firmly. Are you also concerned that this is a major problem? I think uh, given the scope of some of the other problems that we're looking at with the uh, Central Intelligence Agency, uh, in particular, the torture investigation. Um, I don't know if I'd call this a very major one, but it certainly merits inquiry to understand why it is that President Cheney decided to order uh, this to be uh, kept from us, if that is true. That's a press report. And to assure that that's not continuing to happen. Uh, the CIA, we think, and I think the American people expect, should be subject to the laws of the United States, which include the requirement you read that they disclose to certain members of Congress uh, their covert programs. The 1947 National Security Act, um, I'm no expert on these things. I know that you were a, a U.S. attorney before you were a U.S. senator. You're much more qualified than I am to judge these things. But it does seem that the law in this case is uh, clear and direct. I mean, if, if what Director Panetta told the committees is true and there was an overt order from Mr. Cheney to keep this from Congress, does he have any legal wiggle room? Is that a matter of negotiation at that point, or is it a rather clear-cut matter of the law? 
I would think it's a rather clear-cut matter of the law. The question then would be, what is the remedy? Every violation of law is not a criminal offense, and you'd have to, if you wish to proceed as a criminal matter, find a charge that applied to that situation. And it could be that there is none. There have been some calls for the Senate Intelligence Committee to investigate this matter. You're a member of that committee. Uh, can you tell us if there are plans at this point to investigate? Would you support that? I think um, in the exercise of our oversight responsibilities, it is very important for us to make sure that uh, this is not a continuing problem with the CIA. Uh, it is of some concern that this came up at the last minute. Uh, apparently, Director Panetta was very rapid in bringing it to our attention and trying to cure the illegality. Uh, but it's not exactly heartwarming to think that the director of the CIA for many months was unaware of the program himself. What happened to the meeting when he went into his guise and said, okay, folks, I'm the new uh, director here. What do I need to know? What's going to get us in trouble? Bring me up to speed. I don't want anything going off under me that I'm not forewarned about. I cannot believe anybody as sophisticated as he did didn't have that, as he is, didn't have that conversation. And it's hard to believe that it didn't come up then. into the life of the super ultra transparent Obama administration, the Washington Press Corps found itself wondering if the White House knows the difference between transparent and invisible. So much basic official information had come offered only in so-called background briefings, in which no actual official puts his or her name on the line, that the press screamed foul. Led by Associated Press correspondent Jennifer Lovin, who's also president of the White House Correspondents Association, reporters demanded that officials stop sounding like a broken off-the-record. Lovin's boss, the AP's Michael Oreskes, says that background briefings make it impossible for the public to evaluate the information. Do you know where it came from? Do you know what the motive of the person who gave it to you is? Do you know what their reliability is? And the background briefing undercuts all of that. It makes it harder to tell where the information's coming from and what the motives of the source are. Jennifer and her colleagues felt there was a time here to draw a line early in the administration and to say, you shouldn't just use this because you felt like it or because you could. I can see how these background briefings began. It seems to me that it goes back to a diplomatic problem where a secretary of state would want to be frank and candid, but for international diplomacy reasons, simply could not. And therefore, the secretary of state became a you know, highly placed State Department official. 
The most famous example of that, Bob, was the senior official traveling aboard Secretary Kissinger's plane, who every journalist in Washington (laughs) knew was Secretary Kissinger. Uh, But somehow we had agreed not to reveal who it really was. Exactly. But as silly as that may seem, in recent weeks, the situation has gotten absurd. The situation's become a parody of itself in a number of cases. We've had briefings, for example, on the administration's plans for the auto industry. They insisted it be on background. We went ahead and allowed it to be on background. They got up from these uh, briefings on the auto industry and went out on cable TV and said the same thing. We're not asking them to eliminate every background briefing on every possible subject. We're just suggesting that there are many of these background briefings that simply don't need to be on background. When is it warranted to accept on background only? Well, I wouldn't set a hard and fast rule. There certainly are cases, as you described, where perhaps a diplomatically delicate situation justifies it. There may be cases where national security requires it for some reason or other. It's clearly not the case when a background briefing is simply giving an administration position that the administration then repeats in other ways in other forums. That's clearly not serving anybody. Okay, so I'm a reader of the Daily Bugle, and I'm reading a story from the AP about a White House briefing. I see senior administration official. I don't see the actual name. What do I care? The information's there, right? I think it's something President Obama himself has said. We live in an age where people need to take more responsibility, and we want the people who give us the information to be responsible for that information. And background briefings undercut responsibility. People say things without being responsible for them, and we think that's a mistake. So it strikes me that there's a simple solution to this problem, and that is for the White House press corps to get some backbone, and the next time someone in the administration tries this, to simply say, no, we will not take this on background, and oh, by the way, we are going to report the attempt to take official information on background and continue to do that until you start talking to us on the record the way you're supposed to. Our um, Washington bureau chief, Ron Fournier, has been talking very closely with some of his colleagues, the other bureau chiefs for major news organizations here in Washington, and they in turn have been talking to the White House about what the next steps are going to be. We're hoping to negotiate a reasonable set of ground rules for briefings by the White House, which puts many more of them on the record, um, while still respecting those rare occasions when the White House might have a real need to put something on background. The tone of the discussions with the White House has been very good. We've been quite frank and honest with each other. So we're we're pressing the issue now, and we will press forward with it. So stay tuned, as you would say in radio. (laughs) All right, I'll stay tuned. But what I've been tuning into mostly is the comments that I've been reading, which get to the point that, well, no, we can't walk out on these sessions because we don't want to be the one news organization that doesn't get the information that's being presented on background. Uh, You know, the argument being, what can we do? It's a seller's market. It's a seller's market only as long as we're ready to buy. We are working to come up with a unified approach so that no one news organization will feel like they're walking out and being left in the lurch by others who decide to go in and get the information. Has any previous press corps ganged up and said, this will not stand? Yeah, we had this very same argument with the Bush administration and actually for a while made some progress, I thought, and then slipped back again. You try to re negotiate the relationship with each new administration. So I think part of what we're going through here is starting over with a fresh team and a new crew and hoping we can draw the line in a place that's satisfactory to everybody.
Well, that's very grown up of you, and I appreciate the spirit of cooperation. But at some point, do you stop negotiating and just say no? We may have to. If we have to, we have to. But we'll cross that Rubicon when we get to it. All right. Mike, thank you so much. Good to talk to you, Bob. Mike Oreskes is Senior Managing Editor at the Associated Press. Feel like you're just one travel mug away from total contentment, you need to check out the Best of the Left store. Between my Cafe Press and Printfection stores, I've got all the t-shirts, travel mugs, and tote bags you could possibly want to show your Best of the Left pride. If it's a gift you're looking for, then go no farther than a podcast by mail subscription. It's a great way to introduce the show to someone who's not into the whole podcasting scene, but would love to hear it every week sent to them on a CD. Just go to the store tab at bestoftheleft.com. Tonight I think I'll be staying here And you never did like this town I talk out loud like you're still around On to another thing that they're holding the uh, Democrats responsible for uh, Final thing here I'm sorry, holding Obama responsible too for, uh, they said, the House said, hey, wait a minute now, uh, we're not going to let you get away with signing statements, and you said you wouldn't do any, and Barack Obama did a signing statement on the last bill, uh, the Defense uh, uh, Appropriations Bill, we told you about this, he said, yeah, the parts I like, I'm going to do exactly as you say, the parts I don't like, uh, I don't think is within your authority, and within my authority, I'm going to ignore that part of the law. Now, on the substance, I agree with Obama. On whether he can do a signing statement, hell no. If you didn't like that parts of the bill, and I didn't like that parts of the bill, then you should have vetoed it. That's how the Constitution is set up. If you didn't veto it, you can't do a signing statement saying, hey, I'm not going to listen to that part of the bill. How do I know this? A guy named Barack Obama told me all about it. Remember this from the campaign? Let's go to clip number 10. When Congress offers you a bill, do you promise not to use presidential signage to get your way? Yes. <laughs> let, let me just explain for those who are unfamiliar with this issue. Uh, you know, we've got a, a, a government designed by the founders so that there'd be checks and balances. You don't want a president who's too powerful or a congress who's too powerful or a court who's too powerful. Everybody's got their own role. Congress's job is to pass legislation. The president can veto it or he can sign it. Yes. But what George Bush has been trying to do as part of his effort to accumulate more power in the presidency is he's been saying, well, I can basically change what Congress passed by attaching a letter saying, I don't agree with this part or I don't agree with that part. I'm going to choose to interpret it this way or that way. Uh, that's not part of his power, but this is part of the whole theory of George Bush that he can make laws as he's going along. Uh, I disagree with that. I taught the Constitution for 10 years. I believe in the Constitution and I will obey the Constitution of the United States. We're not going to use signing statements as a way of doing an end run around Congress. All right? Oopsie doopsie. Uh, my old civics teacher in eighth grade, Mr. Rollins, said, Power corrupts. 
and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Now, Obama doesn't have absolute power here, but and a little bit of power he's got is apparently corrupting him a little bit because he did a signing statement exactly like he promised he wouldn't do. How clear was candidate Obama? And then I remember people said, oh, wait till he gets into power. He'll want to also do some of the uh, executive branch uh, expansion that Dick Cheney is, you know, authorized under his watch. He'll want to take advantage of that as well. And he'll like that power. So he'll do things like signing statements. And I said, well, I don't know about that. I mean, come on, he's a constitutional law professor, and he was absolutely clear about it. Oopsie doopsie. Apparently not clear enough. Obama better go back and look at his old tapes, because that signing statement, uh, whether you agree with it or not, in, in terms of the content of it, uh, as a matter of the Constitution, is unacceptable. of your life doesn't mean you have to take them up on it you don't have to be on television every minute of every day you're the president not a rerun of law and order <laughs> every time i turn on the tv there's obama he's getting a puppy he's eating a cheeseburger with joe biden he's doing his retard hunk on leno he's taking michelle to broadway and then to paris oh it's the best season of the bachelor yet <laughs> I get it. You love being on TV. I love my bong, but I take it out of my mouth once in a while. Right. The other day, I caught myself saying to a friend, don't tell me if he's fixed the economy yet. I'm TiVoing it. Now, remember during the campaign when John McCain attacked Obama for acting like a celebrity and we all laughed at the grumpy old shell-shocked fool? Well, it turns out he was right. It's getting to where you can't turn on your TV without seeing Obama. Who does he think he is, Dick Cheney? <laughs> I was willing to give the guy the benefit of the doubt until I saw him take Brian Williams on a tour of his house, like they do on Cribs. <laughs> I mean, selling the personal part to stay popular, I'm all for it, but... Hey, you got us already. We like you. We really like you. You're skinny and in a hurry and in love with a nice lady. But so's Lindsay Lohan. And just like Lindsay, we see your name in the paper a lot, but we're kind of wondering when you're going to actually do something. Sorry, folks, but this president is not fighting for real health care reform. It's nibbling that leaves insurance companies still running the show. 
And the banks, the banks that brought us to financial ruin and then got bailout money are laughing at us about how easy it was to get back to business as usual. And scientists keep saying that if we want to keep living, you know, on Earth, it's kind of essential we reduce carbon dioxide by 40% in the next 10 years. Obama's bill calls for 4%. This is not getting the job done, and this is not what I voted for. And this is why I don't want my president. This is why I don't want my president to be a TV star. Because TV stars are too worried about being popular and too concerned with getting renewed. Oh, you can relax about that one, Mr. President. The party is doing everything they possibly can to ensure that you'll get reelected. The Republican Party. <laughs> Speaking of which. Speaking of the Republicans, if you can't shove some real reform down their throats now, then when? Folks, Barack Obama needs to start putting it on the line in fights against the banks, the energy companies, and the health care industry. I never thought I'd say this, but actually, what he needs in his personality is a little George Bush. He needs to stop worrying about being loved and bring out that smug, insufferable swagger that says, suck on it, America. <laughs> George Bush had horrible ideas, torture, deregulation, preemptive war, tax cuts for the rich. But he pushed them through in their full measure, never mind the Congress or the Constitution, the Geneva Convention, Magna Carta. <laughs> Hammurabi's code. The point is, he didn't care if it made him unpopular with every human on the planet not named Cletus or Fred Barnes, which it did. And what we need to do is to marry the good ideas that Barack Obama has with a little bit of that Bush attitude and certitude. I'd love it if Obama came out one day and said, Jesus told me to fix health care. conclusion, Bush was bad, but he never cared if he was seen out in a restaurant having a burger with Dick Cheney. If he wanted a burger, he picked up the phone in the White House and said, I'm the president, bring me a burger. And they would say, sir, this is NORAD. Would you please stop ordering burgers into the red phone? I'm glad Obama is president, but the audacity of hope part is over. Right now, I'm hoping for a little more audacity. Hey, hey, did you ever think there might be another way? Just feel better, just feel better about today. Oh, no, if you never want to have to turn and go away, you might feel better, might feel better if you stay. But you haven't heard a word I've said, yeah, yeah. You've had enough of all your trying. Just give up the state of mind you're in. If you wanna be somebody else, if you're tired of fighting battles with yourself, if you wanna be somebody else, change your mind.
they still teach the First Amendment in law school? You might have wondered that if you heard the argument made by a lawyer for the Obama administration's Justice Department. Career civil division lawyer Jeffrey M. Smith explained in the June 19th Washington Post that statements made by former Vice President Dick Cheney in the Scooter Libby probe ought to be kept secret because a future vice president might refuse to speak to a future investigation out of a concern, quote, that it's going to get on The Daily Show, close quote. Yes, evidently the plan to ensure that officials cooperate with criminal investigations is going to be to use government secrecy to guarantee that their statements will never be subjected to criticism in the media. Now you're probably asking, what about a different idea? How about instead we allow media to criticize and even satirize the statements of public officials and make sure that officials cooperate with criminal investigations by subpoenaing them if they refuse? No, Smith says, that would be, in his word, unseemly. I like Obama, too. I'm just saying, let's not make it a religion. And as far as you folks on the right who think that we are now somehow in league, we're not in league. I was criticizing Obama for not being hard enough on the corporate douchebags you live to defend. I don't want to be on your team. Pick another kid. So I stand by my words, but there is another side to the story, and that is that every time Obama tries to take on a progressive cause, there's a major political party standing in his way, the Democrats. <laughs> now, people talk a lot about a third political party in America. We don't need a third party. We need a first party. You go to the polls, and your choices are the guy who voted for the first Wall Street bailout, or the guy who voted for the next 10. This week we're hearing that a public option for health care is unlikely because it doesn't have the support of enough Democrats. Even Ted Kennedy's plan, Ted Kennedy, yeah, leaves 37 million uninsured. This is because we don't have a left and a right party in this country anymore. We have a center-right party and a crazy party. <laughs> and over the last 30-odd years, Democrats have moved to the right, and the right has moved into a mental hospital. <laughs> so what we have is one perfectly good party for hedge fund managers, credit card companies, banks, defense contractors, big agriculture, and the pharmaceutical lobby. That's the Democrats. And they sit across the aisle from a small group of religious lunatics, flat earthers, and civil war reenactors. <laughs> who mostly communicate by AM radio and call themselves the Republicans. And who actually worry that Obama is a socialist. Socialist? He's not even a liberal. I know he's not, because he's on TV. And while I see Democrats on television, I don't see actual liberals. And if occasionally you, you do get to hear Ralph Nader, or Noam Chomsky or Dennis Kucinich, they're treated like buffoons. 
Okay, these are not three of the world's most charismatic men. But then nobody's going to confuse Newt Gingrich for Zac Efron. And I have to look at his fat face on TV more often than that free credit report song. Shouldn't there be one party that unambiguously supports cutting the military budget? A party that is straight up in favor of gun control, gay marriage, higher taxes on the rich, universal health care, legalizing pot, and steep, and steep direct taxing of polluters. These aren't radical ideas. A majority of Americans are either already for them or would be if they were properly argued and defended. And what we need is an actual progressive party to represent the millions of Americans who aren't being served by the Democrats. Because bottom line, Democrats are the new Republicans. It's impossible for me to agree more with him. He absolutely nailed it. Look, uh, he, he, here's why what he's saying is so important and why we brought it to you here. Because if there's no defense of these arguments that are truly liberal or progressive uh, th then what we'll have is a skewed debate where what used to be the center is presented as left and what used to be, the, as he just says, the mental hospitals presented as the right and they pick somewhere in the middle, but that's not really the middle of the country. Paul Krugman wrote an excellent editorial about it in the New York Times today saying the same thing. And Mars criticism has built on top of other criticism that's already on the Internet and, uh, and building slowly in the media, not the mainstream media, not TV yet, saying, hey, wait a minute now, the real progressive positions are not at all defended. And then here is a perfect example of it. In healthcare debate, we should be having a debate about single payer, and then you can put the Republicans all the way on the right saying, no, we shouldn't do anything. Uh, these health insurance companies are fantastic, and they should continue to make even more profits. And then you could have something like public option in the middle. Whereas now the debate is, well, public options all the way on the left, and then doing nothing is on the right, so let's pick somewhere in the middle. But that's not the middle. And the polls show that. Now three different polls with overwhelming support in the 70s and even 80s in some of the polls, percent of Americans saying that they want the public option. But in the national debate, whether it's politics with the Democrats and Republicans or on television, that's considered the far left. But that's not where the country is. So something's wrong. Something's wrong with our media, something's wrong with our politics, and it's, we're not truly representing the American people. And I couldn't agree more with him on the Republicans and Democrats. I mean, they, the Democrats have shifted so far right that they are what used to be, I think, considered the moderate Republicans before. And there is no old Democratic Party left, except for a couple of people like Kucinich and Maxine Waters and a couple of others. And then on the right wing... They have completely confused themselves for a wing of the corporations. They are completely bought and owned by the top corporations in America. You will almost never see a Republican argue for something that isn't in the interest of corporations that already exist. Not capitalism, not free markets, but for corporations that already exist. That is not a healthy debate in the country, and I think Moore is doing an excellent job in pointing it out so that we can get on a better course here. And he's right, we need to have real progressives on television fighting for some of these ideas so we can get sanity back in the debate in this country.
Thanks for listening, everybody. First of all, I just want to say there was a near catastrophe here. My uh, my terror alert level was elevated today as my what appeared to be my microphone stopped working properly, and I sounded like I was in a a, a hollow tunnel with static behind me as well, and it was an awful experience. And I was in uh, I was in three quarter panic mode for about <clears throat> an hour and a half or so. So, thank goodness we got that all sorted out. Speaking of catastrophe, though, turns out Podcast Alley is a four-quarter game. you got to keep fighting all the way through. On the very last day of the month, we got pushed out. Number 11. Um, and I don't even know if that's how the day ends, but, uh, you know, boy, I, I really thought that 150 votes would keep us in the top 10 and, you know, low pressure. I don't have to talk about it all month. But it turns out the new minimum is at least 175 or somewhere in that neighborhood to keep us in the top 10. And frankly, you know, I'd love to be in the top five. It's totally doable. We just need your help, obviously. So it's a brand new month. Get the lead out. Head over to, well, really just head to bestofleft.com. Follow the link to Podcast Alley. It takes care of all the details for you. It gets you right where you need to be so you can vote for the show. And obviously, I appreciate that. So here we are. It is August. We're looking forward to August 20th, and we're all going to go leave reviews in the iTunes store, you and all of your friends and all of your friends' friends, to see if we can uh, bring the sledgehammer down on the scales of justice over there at the iTunes store, try to rattle the cages and get their attention. And now, of course, as I hope to do every show, I want to thank just a couple of members, Laura W., member number 13 joined up on June 19th and Glenn S member number 21 joined up on July 14th thanks to both of them obviously they are enjoying the benefits of membership like the warm fuzzy feeling they get knowing they're helping to keep the show going as well as the brand new well less brand new now uh, raw feed where they get all of the clips ahead of time including in their video format so they can watch it on their iPod or iPhone or anything they want. If you want to become a member, there is a brand new members tab with all the details about membership right there on the website. Very easy to find. And now, as you've been hearing me talk about this idea of contacting groups around the country, telling them about the show and how they should go tell their memberships, well, I got this excellent email today from Clint, who went ahead and did just that. This is what he writes. Dear Tennessee Democratic Party, I'm writing as a San Diego resident currently deployed OEF to inform you of a great podcast your members may enjoy, The Best of the Left. I've been listening to Jay's weekly production of clips from various outlets that cover many of the topics Democrats have been spearheading for some time, i.e. global warming, equal rights, honest debate, etc., Please consider checking out the site, bestoftheleft.com, and suggesting your members tune in to what is discussed as a good way to stay informed and up-to-date on, sub- on such topics. Thank you, Clint. And, of course, then he got a response, and that's what, why he emailed me, saying, uh, Clint, thank you for sending this to us. I will subscribe and encourage other Tennessee Democrats to do so as well. Thank you for your service! Exclamation point. Cheers. And that is exactly what we're looking for. Thank you, Clint, so much for doing that and for letting me know that you did it. 
if all is as it should be, then you will be a role model for thousands to do the exact same thing. Obviously, Clint just showed how easy it is to write a short little email about the show and get a positive response. Excellent stuff. So that is it for today. Stay connected with the show on Twitter and Facebook and by subscribing to our emails. Support the show with reviews on iTunes on August 20th and not before. Vote at Podcast Alley right now because it's a new month and we actually want to stay in the top 10 this time. Give us, you know, 175, 200 votes. I'll be perfectly happy. And while you're on the website checking that out, go ahead and take five minutes and fill out the listener survey. Links to all that is on the website. You can listen to the show on your smartphone without syncing to your computer by visiting stitcher.com. Visit the show notes on your blog to find all the links to the sources and music used in this episode. So, coming to you from inside the Beltway and border, yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast delivered to you every Wednesday and every weekend, thanks to our members from bestoftheleft.com. Black and white, you took apart a picture that wasn't right.